Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. Um, Friends, our scripture for today comes from um, the book of Acts. This is chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and then verses 12 and 13. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us say, Thanks be to God. So just to set the stage a little bit for how unique of an experience this was, this uh, wasn't just the rushing of the wind that was garnering attention. This was just a few, I guess, moments, theoretically or chronologically speaking, after Jesus had showed up back from the dead, had shown up after having been confirmed dead, buried, had a stone rolled in front of the tomb, and then been seen by not just the disciples, but apparently hundreds, if not thousands of people walking around and entering into walls, you know, going through walls into, into rooms where the disciples were waiting. So, and then being taken up into heaven um, to be at the right hand of God. And the disciples had been told to wait. Had been told to wait in hope, wait in promise, wait in kind of the tradition of waiting that the Israelites had constantly been in, from all the prophets who have been telling you that there will be a time, there will be a day where my helper will come, there will be a day when a servant will come, there will be a day when my spirit will be poured out upon you, and my young men will prophesy, and my young women will prophesy, and even slaves will rise up to be the voice of God in the world. So there are two amazing things that happened on Pentecost in that moment in Acts chapter 2. The, the first, obviously, is this amazing thing of the, this rushing wind, which is an image that is used often in Scripture to talk about God's presence. Pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. Ruach is the breath that goes and forms the world, the formless void. The ruach of God comes and makes order out of things. The, the, the breath of God comes violently down to illuminate the gospel for the disciples so that they can go beyond just their small little context, but to the entire world to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the first amazing thing that happens. The second amazing thing that happens is that Peter somehow makes sense out of all this. Because it's not every day that a bunch of people go crazy for Jesus. Now, let me be completely honest with you. I wish there were more instances where somebody was passing a Christian 
in the world and had to ask those same two questions. What does this mean? Are they drunk? Look, I know people ask that second question about some of you all the time. But I would love for it to be about Jesus in a healthy way. Right? I would love that if we lived into the United Methodist history of, do you know the, the uh, American Sign Language for Methodist? Is this. Do you want to do this with me? You know what else this means? Enthusiasm. United Methodists had such enthusiasm that people would say, what is wrong with them? And it wasn't like waving their hands in the air, just going ballistic with their bodies all the time. It was planting schools and planting hospitals and planting churches. It, there, was a, there was a saying back when the West was being expanded, when, when people were expanding West, there was a saying that the first, the first, you know, you've seen the meme where the first thing on Mars is a Dollar General. Everyone knew when you got to Kansas, there would be a United Methodist church and a United Methodist school waiting for you. It was saying the, United Methodist, the Methodists go first because there was such enthusiasm about it. I wish, I wish that we, as Jesus says, lumped words of kindness as burning coals over someone's head instead of adding to the fires of Gehenna over somebody's head. I wish that there was something different about each one of us so closely connected with the teachings and example of Jesus that people did have to ask us, did you have wine this morning? What does this mean? And I wish that we always had the opportunity that Peter has to make it make sense. As Peter would write in his letter in 1 Peter, always be prepared for a witness. Peter comes with the witness of what has just happened, what people have just seen as the violent wind rushes down and they start speaking in all these different languages. Peter assures them, no, it's only nine in the morning. We haven't had new wine yet. Although I do want to remind you, when Jesus shows up at the wedding at Cana of Galilee, what does he provide? He provides the best wine. And it's not about the alcohol. It's about, with Jesus, the best is yet to come. Right? The disciples have had the best of what is to come. They've experienced the presence of God. They're excited about it. They are uh, speaking in new languages. And Peter says, no, it's not anything having to do with alcohol. It's not anything having to do with just the quality of the wine. It is the spirit that is working within us. But he goes to a place of scripture first. He goes to Joel chapter 2. Uh, verse, uh, he goes to Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 29. And think about what has just happened here. What people have just seen. He goes to scripture that they know and he says, Then afterward I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. What Peter does is he goes to the accepted authority, if you will. He goes to the consensus of God's activity. This is what we believe about what we have as the Bible today, what they would say about the scrolls of the Torah, the scrolls of the prophets, the, the scriptures that they held, is this is the consensus of what we believe about God and about God's relationship with God's creation. And so we're going to go to these accepted prophets, these prophets who have been said to speak the truth of God into the situation of the world. Peter draws upon that knowledge, draws upon that scripture and says, this is what you've seen. This is what you've experienced. I'm going to tell you what this is. And then he goes later to Psalm 16. And he says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. 
Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption. And remember what had just happened before. The witness of the disciples was that Jesus had risen in the flesh. And Peter uses the authority of the day to say that this is nothing new. In fact, we've been told this before. We've seen this before. This is what God has always done. This ought to make sense to you that Jesus is the Son of God who is rising, who will not be left to Hades, will not be left to Sheol. And in that day when Jesus rises, in that last day, which does not mean the end of times, the last day is when God's kingdom comes to fruition, comes to this earth, that the Spirit will be poured out upon all of us. Peter first goes to Scripture and says, see, we've seen this before, we've heard this before. And in fact, Scripture for us today is a really useful way to find where God is in the world. In fact, the best way to find where God is in the world. If you are depressed and you are sad and you don't know where God is, there is a whole book called Lamentations and most of the Psalms that will connect you with hope in the midst of hopelessness. If you are joyful and you are celebratory, there is a whole bunch of psalms as well that will connect you with where God is in the midst of greatness. And you can see how God brings people out of slavery in Egypt in the Exodus story. You can see how God intimately breathes life into us in Genesis. You can see how God intimately calls us friends in John. Right? And if you ever have said the words, this is the, the worst the world has ever gotten, you've never read First and Second Kings. If you've ever said this is the worst the church has ever been, you've never read 1 Corinthians. And you've never realized that the scripture tells our story over and over again about who God is and how God relates with us and how we relate with God. But the next thing that Peter does, and the reason why he picks out those scriptures, is that Peter is drawing upon the tradition that people know. Pentecost, for us, Pentecost is a Greek word. Um, and Pentecost for us is the coming of the Spirit. Some people call it the birthday of the church, but Pentecost is ordained, it is delineated as a celebration in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Every book, every first book of the, uh, and number, every first, uh, every book in the first five books of the Bible except for Genesis, it's called the Festival of Weeks, or Shavuot, Shavuot. And it is 50 days after the Passover, It's celebrating the harvest of the grain that God sustains. Just as God called the Israelites out of Egypt and and delivered them, God sustained them in the wilderness. And so when they pluck the grain up, they're remembering the manna from heaven. They're remembering how God has sustained them and celebrating this. But also in what truly sustains them is not the grain, but it is the Torah that was given. They celebrate the Torah that was given in this what's called Festival of Weeks or Feast of Weeks, 50 days after the Passover, that God is not just a one-time actor of deliverance, but God is an ongoing actor of deliverance. And why these thousands of people are gathered to witness this experience is because they are there to celebrate that God is a sustaining God. That is the tradition that they have brought into this experience. And so when they have the Holy Spirit rush in to say that even though Jesus is gone, Jesus promised, I will send you a helper. Right, this is the helper. This is God's sustaining power. We've seen it in Scripture before. We're living what the tradition has told us is true. And remember, the whole purpose of Peter's speech is to tell these Jewish people that who you have known as Jesus is your Messiah. 
And this scripture and this tradition is illuminated. It is vivified in this experience of the rushing wind, in this experience of the Holy Spirit coming. And people start to figure it out, what this means. What this means is that God's kingdom has come in the person of Jesus Christ. What this means is that the Lord has drawn near, the suffering servant has come. Every prophecy of Isaiah has come to truth. And what we need to do is rest in the comfort that Jesus has come and lived and died and resurrected and ascended to bring life and life to the fullest. In fact, get us to eternal life. All that the Jews had been searching for in following the law. They get it. The disciples aren't drunk. They're actually perfectly logical. But it's this experience of the heart that Peter is able to, to draw on. This experience of something different in the world, something unique that has warmed their hearts strangely that he can then go to their head and make sense of. When I say that I wish there were more opportunities to expound upon the gospel like Peter had, I believe that those opportunities come because people have heart experiences with us. They have heart experiences where they wonder, why would you sacrifice for the good of someone else? Why would you sacrifice even for the good of your enemy? Why are you praying for those who would threaten to harm us? Why are you willing to let down your own choice for the good of somebody else? I don't understand why this is, but my heart is strangely warmed by your kindness. My heart is strangely moved by your compassion. My heart is wondering. My heart is on fire. My heart is burning to know why you would risk your own comfort, settle your own comfort, give away your own comfort for the freedom of somebody else. For the joy of somebody else. When their heart is strangely warmed, we get to come in and we get to tell them our story of why Jesus makes sense. What Peter does in the Pentecost sermon is he bridges the gap, the 18-inch gap between our head and our heart. I'm going to assume that most of you are not here today because you did an exhaustive research study on every scripture in the Bible, and then you looked back into tradition, and you felt like everything made sense of that, and then you came to the conclusion, yes, this all makes perfect logical sense. Everything in the Bible falls according to x, y, x plus y equals z, so therefore I'm going to be a Christian and show up to church today. I've read the Bible about 90 times, and I still don't get it. Some parts of it. But I know that I had a fantastic experience with Christians growing up who loved me and nurtured me and stirred in my heart this question, what does this mean? Why would they do this for me? Why would they care so much? It doesn't, it doesn't fit with survival of the species. Or the survival of the fittest. Why would they do this for me? I know others who have had these surreal experiences where they have literally been drunk. And they've been next to their toilet on the floor after the worst night that they might have once called the best night. And they've just said, I've had enough. God, where are you? And they've had this surreal experience where God has said, get up and I'll show you. 
and something stirs in their heart to where they walk into a church or they go to their Christian friend and they say, I need help or where can I be that will make sense in the world? And someone has had that opportunity to bridge that gap between head and heart the same way that Peter did in Pentecost, the same way that Wesley did in Methodism. What we walk through with Peter's sermon there is what Albert Outler would call later the quadrilateral. It is Wesley's way of interpreting scripture, but I would also say it is our way of interpreting life as well. When we plan sermon series here, in fact, we don't just look at scripture and say, okay, what does this draw out? How can we, what can we draw out of this? What we do is we look at the human condition and what people are experiencing and we say, what does scripture say about this? And the quadrilateral is kind of four parts that all work together. Scripture is our primary witness. What we have as the Bible is the consensus, true experience of God and with God's creation. And there are lots of different takes in here on what that means. If you've seen the story of Jesus versus the story of Judges, it's a little different. That is just the Holy Spirit coming in. If you had the Holy Spirit in your heart, you would know that, <laughs> right? So what we have here is the consensus understanding of God and God's relationship to creation compiled through the Holy Spirit's help by a tradition of people who, who bore witness to each other and said, well, I've seen this, and I've seen this, and I've experienced that, and I've experienced this, and this is what Scripture told us, and this is what we've seen, and so we put these stories together, and yes, some of them seem to not make sense together. And that's where we see how the church has made sense of these. The church has lived out the practice for, for thousands of years now of what do Peter's words mean for us today? How did Origen and Augustine, how did um, St. Teresa of Avila, how did they make sense of what Jesus was doing in the words of Scripture? And how did they see that lived out in their time and place? How did that make sense for them in their tradition? And we get, to, we get to gain from that tradition. Everything we have is because we've gained it from somebody else. In fact, when, when you walk in, if you ever, I don't know if y'all have ever said this, but if there's like for one instance been an electric guitar in worship, and you've said, Jesus would never allow this. It doesn't say anything in the Bible about that. You just were probably raised in the Church of Christ. And the Church of Christ says, no instruments. Right? Those who are raised in the Catholic Church have a different understanding of, of how you're supposed to take communion and what the proper way is. People who grew up Catholic are more likely to come to me and confess their sins. Or the opposite side of that is they're so sick of confessing their sins to priests that they never talk to me. Right? Everything we gain is because tradition has told us one way or the other. And then we use what we have experienced. These people, the disciples, experienced the rushing wind of the Spirit. And that made them question, what does this mean? And, and what's going on here? And we've seen that happen throughout our history. Right? There was a point in which the Methodist Church had lots of clergy who would tell you that your slaves are ordained to be owned by you by God. In fact, you are doing God's work by owning slaves. Right? And even today, that still ought to hit you as like, ooh, that doesn't sound right. Are we, are we really living in the kingdom of God if one human being is owned by another? And that, that caused people to pause and ask the question, what does this mean? And they went back in the tradition, and even in tradition, they found that there were, there were early Christians who were working for abolition and 
And there was the letter to Philemon, which Paul was calling for a slave to be set free so that he could be equal in the sight of God as all people should be equal in the sight of God and have those freedoms. Right? Our experience either validates everything that we've seen in Scripture and learned from tradition, or it causes us to say, has tradition messed up on this? And believe it or not, Christianity hasn't always got it right. Sometimes our experience causes us to go back and question, did we get the Scripture right? right? Scripture is our primary source. Did we understand what was happening in those Scriptures? And experience causes us to go back and look at, well, what was the history and what was the context? What were they trying to do here versus how our tradition has told us the Scripture means? And then ultimately we use reason. That's the fourth part. God gave us brains for interpretation. God gave us brains to interpret the world. God gave us brains to process that just because Joshua believes he is called to go sacrifice every man, woman, and child in Jericho doesn't mean that every war we fight is holy. It doesn't mean that we should react with violence first when Jesus so very clearly tells us not to. Wesley experienced these moments for himself, these Pentecost moments for himself, as uh, he was struggling so mightily. Wesley was not a heart person, as Carrie Lynn did so wonderfully explain how Susanna's education in the Holy Club, Wesley was a head person. And, and churches often sway one way or the other. You've got people who are like, you know what, we're going to make sense out of all of this, but we're going to have no emotional connection with God whatsoever or each other. I went to a Bible study one time in college, and it was Calvin's Institutes, which is like 56 volumes of boredom. And it was a fill-in-the-blank thing. And I went there, and, and the teacher literally read, and we filled in the blank. And we got to, like, question six, and I was the annoying kid that was like, hold on, I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. And the, like, college student who was slightly older than I was looked at me and said, this isn't the place to ask questions. Just learn the material, and we'll be fine. Right, there are other traditions that sway way too heavily on the experience. Right, and their experience can lead them down paths of self-indulgence, if you will. As opposed to the tradition and the scripture that grounds us in a head place. Wesley was in a headspace, and, and he often had in this headspace the basically a new form of law. If I go to the prison enough, if I go to the hospital enough, if I pray enough, then God will love me. I see the X plus Y equals Z, and I'm trying to do so much of X and Y that Wesley, I would say, was clinically depressed on some level. And he actually ends up taking a missionary position going to Georgia to try and earn his salvation, if you will. And the, the entire experience went horribly. I mean, he made, you know, he had some small little group of Christian converts in Georgia, but he had gone to uh, proselytize the indigenous people that were there. He had tried to establish Christianity as a major player in the New World, um, in, in a uh, committed sense, and he failed horribly. But on the way over to Georgia, he's in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on this you know, old wood ship, and this terrible huge storm comes upon them. It threatens to capsize the entire boat. And so Wesley does what Wesley does, is he starts leading worship in the middle of a storm, which you would think is a great thing, except the entire worship is centered around repentance and he even baptizes a child just in case they die. We want to do X plus Y equals Z to make sure that we all go to heaven. And it's probably the most dour, sour religious service you've ever been to. But then after he finishes, he walks into a next like, compartment in the ship, and there's a bunch of Moravian Christians. Which is, uh, if, if Wesley's part of the pietist, I gotta be holy movement, 
they're part of what is actually called the holiness movement, and it is more of an emotional sense of things. And while Wesley is calling everyone to repentance and trying to check all the boxes, the Moravian Christians are singing praise songs to God in the midst of this storm. They are loudly praising God, talking about how good God is, even though everything around them is going to hell in a handbag. And Wesley joins with them and eventually sits down and asks them, what does this mean and are you drunk? And they have such confidence in the grace of God that even when things aren't going well, even when they aren't doing well, God is still present. God is still the author of salvation. And God will see them through even when they die. They will have paradise in heaven. Wesley writes in his journal, truly, this was the best day. Truly, this was the best day when he witnessed, perhaps for the first time, a group of Christians who didn't just try and make sense of Jesus, but actually felt Jesus. And Wesley would later go to Aldersgate Chapel outside of St. John's Cathedral, or St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and he would be listening to the preface to the letter to the Romans by Martin Luther. And in a moment of despair and depression, when he had got to that place, he heard the words that there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. There is no head sense you can do to grasp the work that Jesus has done for you. It is God's grace alone and our belief and faith in God's grace alone that brings us salvation. And his heart was strangely warmed. Somebody had given him the words to make sense of all that he was feeling. Martin Luther had given him the words to make sense of the anguish he was feeling, but also the hope that sprang forward. He wrote that his heart was strangely warm. The Holy Spirit rushed upon him, and from that moment, he encouraged, uh, he, he didn't just go to the headspace of the church, he went out to the coal miners of the world. He went out and preached where he considered it to be vile to preach outside of the church because he wanted to reach those who simply needed to know that they were loved, simply needed to know that they had grace in their lives. But he didn't go all the way to the heart. Because Wesley was an academic by heart, and from his heart experience, he carved out what we now call the via salutis, the way of salvation, and used the words to express how people were feeling when they saw somebody who had not quite yet grasped Christianity, but were doing so many good things for God. You know somebody like that? Somebody who really isn't a churchgoer, somebody who doesn't know Christianity, someone who's from another religion by chance, but they're like the best person in the world. And he called it prevenient grace. From Wesley's heart experience, he knew that God can do all things with all people, and, and God is consistently working with us even before we claim that. And so Wesley named that in his head for people's hearts to know that God is at work on everyone in this world. In fact, God is using and working for everybody to provide good news to the world. One thing I love about Methodism, and one of the gifts that I believe we can offer the world, is that Methodism offers this way of interpreting scripture and life called the quadrilateral. It offers a theology that bridges the head and the heart. And it enables us to go into the world and see what people are experiencing and speak the truth of scripture into those experiences in an articulate way. It provides us the experience, it provides us the opportunity to also learn from scripture 
but also ask questions of, of our tradition and how tradition has expressed Scripture's knowledge to us. What I love is that it's a, dynam- a dynamic faith. Because can you imagine... Can you imagine how stuck people would have been if they had just seen the Pentecost moment and had no one to explain it to them? What we have is an understanding of religion that allows us to see moments of the Holy Spirit in the world, see moments of Holy Spirit in Scripture, and explain them well, or at least have the opportunity to ask questions of what we used to know. It's a witness I believe can help the world Especially the skeptical and the left out. It's a witness I believe and I wish that we would take more advantage of. I wish that I heard more stories of people asking us, what does that mean? Are you drunk? I wish I heard more stories where we had interpreted Scripture, where we had lived into Scripture in our experience so well that people needed us to walk through what that meant. So I wonder if this week, I wonder if this week you might find an opportunity to show people, to show someone you know, your children, your friends, coworkers, find some way, some way this week to show someone you know how the Holy Spirit is already working in their life. Let's pray. Precious God, we come to you in humility knowing that your Spirit has been poured out upon us, which means that we are in your kingdom. Your kingdom has been poured out in full, and so, Lord, we repent when we have not lived into the fullness of what you have shown us to be your kingdom in Jesus Christ. We repent that we have not trusted in the Spirit to lead all of our actions. Lord, we have not done the work of asking the questions of whether we are truly in the Spirit or not. But Lord, we give you thanks for the grace inherent in who you are. That when we are missing the mark, when we are down and out, when we can't see which way is up, when we are in the middle of a storm and the ocean, you have called us good, you have said that you are good, and you have shown us time and time again, that you send a rushing wind to pick us up and fill us so that we might continue to be your church in this world, on this earth. God, may we not simply rest with a story, but may we be the story of your spirit and your breath illuminating and reviving this world so that all may come to know that you are love and you are God. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today and let us know how we are doing. Be sure to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.